Welcome to Out of Zion with Susan Michael, an exploration of the Bible and the land of Israel. From ancient biblical sites to the story behind the stories, join Susan on a journey through the most exciting book on the planet. Hit the subscribe button for future episodes, which will deepen your faith and bring the Bible to life. And now, here's our host, Susan Michael. Well, hey there. Welcome to the 3D Jesus series. We're part five today. We're going to be talking about Jesus goes to Jerusalem. Now, next week, we're also going to be talking about Jesus in Jerusalem, but it's going to be focused on the last week of his life, the time that he spent there. So today we want to talk about other times before the last week when Jesus went to Jerusalem and why, and what did he encounter there? And it's going to set the context and sort of set the stage uh, for better understanding of what we're going to be talking about next week. So uh, let's get started. All right. Well, Jesus did go to Jerusalem uh, several times during his Galilean ministry. We know this mainly from the book of John, uh, where he tells us um, that Jesus went up to some of the Jewish feasts. You know, there were three great feasts of Israel in the Bible. And during each one of these three feasts, the men of the tribes of Israel were required to come up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord there and to um, celebrate and observe this feast. And um, so, of course, not every man could go every single time, um, but many did come, and the city of Jerusalem would just be um, bursting at the seams with all the people that had come up for these feasts that were usually a week long. And they would camp all around outside the city. And uh, so in this context, we know from the book of uh, Luke that John, that Jesus's family went up to Jerusalem every year to celebrate the Passover. And um, so they made that caravan. And we talked about last week the story, how that in one of those caravans, they go up to Jerusalem with half the village of Nazareth probably, and all the kids are traveling together and playing together, and they get halfway home and they discover, no, Jesus, where's Jesus? We left him behind. And Joseph and Mary have to go back and they find him in the temple. And uh, so that was a part of their annual family uh, pilgrimage with their neighbors and their uh, relatives from Nazareth to go up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Now, we know from John uh, chapter 10 that Jesus went to Jerusalem during the Feast of Hanukkah, or it's called the Feast of Dedication. And I just told you the whole story of Hanukkah in our first part of this series, Setting the Stage, where we talked about the Maccabees that took over the temple. It had been desecrated by Antiochus IV Epiphanes and a pig had been sacrificed in the Holy of Holies, and uh, it had been made uh, uh, to as a temple to Zeus. And so the Maccabees took over the temple. They cleansed it. They rededicated it to God. They relit the big menorah. And by a miracle, it burned for eight days while they waited for more of the precious holy oil. 
uh, to be brought down from the Galilee. That's the story of Hanukkah. The only time it's mentioned in the Bible is in the New Testament and the book of John because it took place after the Old Testament was completed. And so in the New Testament, the one time it's mentioned, we have Jesus going up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Dedication. So uh, during the Feast of Hanukkah, as you can imagine, they're celebrating how these zealots from the family of Aaron had, had freed them from the pagan Greek rule of the Seleucids and had taken over their temple. And so there's a lot of talk about, well, will God free us from the Roman oppression that we have? And um, where is Messiah? And do we have a Messiah to lead us against Rome and to free us from this? And so it's in this context that we read in John 10, where they come to Jesus and they say, look, are you or aren't you? Are you going to reveal yourself now? Are you the Messiah? And we read Jesus's response, and it's kind of like, Jesus, just come out and say it. But in a way, he is coming out and saying it. But in a way, he's saying, you know, he's not wanting to get caught up in a zealot rebellion against Rome. And he's looking for those that have the heart to follow after what he's presenting to them that is God's will for them, it's a heart matter. And it's those that really want to know the truth and that want to obey it and that want to be righteous. They're the ones that are going to hear him. They're the ones that are going to see his miracles and follow him. So he tells them, he says, look, if you haven't believed my works, you're not going to believe me. And um, so it's in this context there in the, the Feast of Hanukkah. You can read the whole passage there and his go back and forth. Uh, in the end, they, uh, he says, I and the Father are one. And they try to stone him then for blasphemy. They're looking for a political Messiah to free them from Rome. Uh, they're not looking for someone to claim to be uh, divine. So that's how that kind of ended. Um, Jesus also went to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And we read about that in John 7. And John 7 is followed, of course, by 8 and 9 and 10. And it's a whole series of things that happened either during the Feast of Tabernacles or right after it. It's very interesting. I'm not going to give a teaching on this. I'm not going to go into it in detail. Um, but it's during the great Feast of Tabernacles that they had what was called the water libation ceremony. And the Feast of Tabernacles, it's a, a, a feast where they celebrate the harvest, the fall harvest, and they celebrate that God had provided rain for them and that they had had an abundant harvest and they bring their tithes and offerings up to the temple. Um, but they also begin to pray for rain for the coming year because it's a very arid part of the world and they had to have God's blessing in the form of rain for there to be crops. And so the water libation ceremony played upon this importance of water and it also uh, used water as a sign of the Holy Spirit. And so the priests would go down to the pool of Siloam and 
take up water in a beautiful golden container and they did a whole march back up the hill to the temple and they would take this water and pour it out over the altar and um, it was signifying God's not just provision of rain but actually his presence and his pouring out of the Holy Spirit over his people and it's in that setting that Jesus stands and he says that if any man is thirsty, come to me as the true fountain of living waters. Wow. You and I read it and we're like, why is he saying that? He's saying it in this context of this whole ceremony. Everybody around him knew what he was saying. Another interesting thing is that, of course, during the great feast, they had not just the menorah lit that burned all the time, but all kinds of menorahs all around the temple complex lit. The light shone from there throughout all of Jerusalem. It was such full of light during this festival. And it's within that context that Jesus stands and says that he's the light of the world. So uh, as you understand these feasts and these settings, you understand better some of the things that Jesus was saying and doing. But he always ended up in an argument. <laughs> and, uh, and so this is one of the things that I want to talk about in a minute. Um, during the feast, the, he ends up in an argument with the feast, the priests and the Pharisees. It goes on. It gets quite heated. And, um, and then he heals a blind man, and um, it's, it's a whole section here of three or four chapters. And, um, and so my point is that Jesus went to Jerusalem, and he observed these feasts, just like any believing Jew um, of the time. Now, he also went up for Passover, but we're going to talk about that next week because Passover occurs during that last week of his time in Jerusalem. It has great special significance, and so we're going to save that conversation for next week. But now, let's talk about Jesus at the temple. He comes up as a religious Jewish man to uh, fulfill the feast, to come before the Lord there in the tabernacle, in the temple, uh, they have the sacrifices, they have these ceremonies going on, they have many prayers, they're reciting the scriptures. He knows exactly what to expect. They do this every year, and he's there. But as I said, he usually ended up then in conversation, which usually led into argument. And so this has led to some oversimplifications. There's my word again. We talked about it in the 3D Bible series several times. We tend to oversimplify things, and then we end up actually in error by portraying something as what it really wasn't. To understand these arguments and the confrontations that Jesus would end up in, we first need to discuss some of these factions that were there in Jerusalem, I mean, they were throughout the land also, but in Jerusalem, they're all there. It's crowded. It's tight. They're rubbing shoulders with each other. They're hearing each other. They get into conversation. And we, 21st century Christian readers, we read it and we kind of tend to lump all the Jews together. And then there's Jesus. 
that's what we can't do. So I want to go through some of the different factions that were there so that you can understand. And next week, you'll especially understand some of what took place in that final week in the life of Jesus. So first we have the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the priestly class. They were wealthy. They were educated. They were aristocrats. They were affluent. Um, they were very powerful because they made up of the 71 members of the Sanhedrin, which was the governing body for the Jewish world. These were the Sadducees. The high priest was appointed from their midst, and the high priest had been and was of one certain family. It was an aristocratic family uh, at the time of Jesus. Nevertheless, the high priest was appointed by the Roman authorities. That way, the Romans could control who was the high priest. And the job of the high priest was to bring about some kind of peace between the Roman authorities and the people of Judea, the Jewish people. And in between was the priestly class and the Sadducees and the high priest. And so this high priest had a very diplomatic job of keeping peace between the Roman authorities and the people of Israel. Now, the Sadducees did not believe in the oral Torah, which I'll explain that in a minute, but they only believed in the written Torah, the written first five books of the Bible. So uh, they did not believe in any kind of afterlife. Once you died, that was it. It was all over. There was no kind of eternal punishment or reward. It was all about the here and now. Now, because this priestly class was a little corrupted, I mean, uh, power corrupts, money corrupts, but here they were having to appease the Romans and almost be like the Roman voice piece to the Jews, and it really, um, it really uh, corrupted them, and um, it dirtied their motives at times. And um, so in reaction to that, we had another movement called the Essenes. And the Essenes wouldn't have anything to do with the temple sacrifices or any of the ceremonies in the temple because they would have nothing to do with that aristocratic priesthood. And the Essenes, actually some of them were priests that had broken off away from the corrupt priesthood. And some of them had gone down into the desert near Qumran and they had this very strict community. But not all Essenes were like that. The, uh, the historian Josephus said that there were Essenes in like every town and every village in Israel. Throughout the whole area, there were Essenes. So it was like a denomination, if you want to think in Christian terms. It was like a movement of people that focused on purity and being righteous and uh, having no respect for the priesthood because they saw it as uh, corrupted and as co-opted. And um, so that was the Essene movement. Now, the Essenes had great zeal for God, but um, they were focused on purity and focused on being righteous. And as I said uh, earlier in this series, we believe the Essenes 
had some influence on uh, Jesus's upbringing and on many of the people uh, that followed Jesus. Now, then there were the zealots. They also had great zeal for God, and they didn't have a respect for the corrupted priesthood, but they wanted to fight. They wanted to have an uprising and to fight the Romans and to free the Jewish people of Roman rule. So the Romans were very, very afraid of the zealots, and the other movements, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes, they were all worried about the zealots because at any moment the zealots could bring about some kind of uprising, and we all know that the Romans uh, would stomp it out in a minute, and it would be very, very bad for the Jewish people. Then we have the Pharisees. The Pharisees were also zealous for God, um, but they were not of the priesthood. They were not of the Sadducees. First of all, they disagreed with the Sadducees, but the Pharisees their focus was on the Torah and teaching the law of God, the Torah, the, the first five books of the Bible. But alongside the written Torah, they also had an oral Torah. It was the oral traditions of the leaders and the rabbis that had been carried down alongside the written Torah. And so they were the ones that tried to interpret the Torah and the law for the everyday Jewish person. And so they're telling them, well, in order to observe the Sabbath, you can't do this, you can't do that, you need to be careful of this, or you need to be careful of that. And they were down at the everyday level of the everyday person. And they were also throughout the country but they believed in this oral tradition and this, you could say, uh, um, elaboration of the law. And the Sadducees didn't go for that. The high priest and the priests there in Jerusalem, they disagreed with the Pharisees very much on this particular point about the oral law. So in addition to these religious groups, Sadducees, Pharisees, Essenes, Zealots, then you have other divisions like the Judean Jews versus the Galilean Jews. And the Judean Jews really looked down on the Galilean Jews. And at times in the New Testament, you'll read where it says that the Jews did this or that the, the Jews will do that. And you're like, but wait a minute, they are, they're all Jews. And we think it's a translation issue that it's actually talking about the Judeans. The Judeans were opposed uh, to the Galilean Jews. And um, interesting enough that, um, you know, the saying, like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's your typical Judean outlook looking down on the Galilee. But in all reality, many of the famous rabbis of the time of Jesus of that era all came from the Galilee. And that's because I think that was more their center of study and reflection and teaching versus the whole temple complex that was going on in Jerusalem. That was like a whole different world and universe. And that was more the Sadducees world. So now within this array of divisions, and arguments amongst each other. We have the role of rabbi, and I want to talk about it for a minute. Rabbis were teachers of the law. Most of the rabbis, I think, probably came from the party of what we call the Pharisees. 
And most Jewish scholars, which recognize that Jesus was most definitely a rabbi, he was addressed as rabbi, his disciples called him rabbi, but he was a teacher and he functioned like a rabbi. But they also recognized Jesus was a Pharisee in terms of his theology. And uh, a lot of times in the Christian world, we have this negative view of Pharisees because of Jesus's arguments with the Pharisees. Um, but Jesus actually probably was a Pharisee. So, uh, and there's one scripture in Matthew where he actually tells his disciples, it's in Matthew 23, where he tells them, um, you know, do as they say, but not as they do. So in other words, obey the teaching of the Pharisees. Just don't obey what they do because they're not living it. So his beef with the Pharisees was how they lived. It wasn't actually in what they were teaching um, or in the law of Moses. I'll come back to that in just a minute. A rabbi was not like today what we would call a, a priest or a pastor or even a rabbi today. A rabbi today is an ordained official like a pastor. They can do marriages and funerals and it's an official position um, in the time of Jesus, a rabbi really was just an everyday designation of a teacher. And, um, and Jesus taught. He, um, he had disciples. Jesus had disciples. But all rabbis at the times of Jesus gathered around them disciples. And there were certain expectations of their disciples. Their disciples would memorize everything that their teacher said. The disciples would try to imitate the lifestyle that they saw their rabbi living. They followed him. They ate with him. They lived with him. They, it was very close contact, and it was a, a teaching by example. And that's exactly what we read about Jesus doing in the Gospels with his disciples. But you need to know that's how every rabbi was with their disciples. And the disciples were expect. this was a high honor to be invited to be a disciple of a rabbi. And in return, you were to leave your home and your family and your livelihood, and you were to put everything into following and learning from this rabbi. And it was an honor to be given that opportunity. So when we see the disciples of Jesus doing that, we understand that was the way it was uh, between rabbi and disciple. Now, Jesus, uh, we're told in the Gospels that Jesus taught in all the synagogues in the area there in the Galilee. So this means that not only was Jesus a rabbi, he was a very learned man to be able to go in and speak and to be accepted as a speaker meant that he was very learned and also that he was totally observant of the law of Moses. Jesus was totally observant. He kept Sabbath. He kept all of the eating and the dietary laws. He wore the, the, the garments with the tassels on them as any religious Jew of the time would have. He was totally observant or he would have never been accepted into the synagogues, nor would he have been called rabbi. It's very clear to understand. 
He was a totally observant, orthodox Jewish rabbi of the time. Jesus never questioned the law of Moses. He actually lived in total obedience to it. What he questioned was how that the Pharisees had added on to it in their interpretation and in ways that contradicted the actual heart of the law. That's what he argued about uh, with the Pharisees. So I want to talk a minute about Torah and about law, because in the New Testament, the word Torah is translated law. And in our Christian sermons and teachings and, and all, we give law a very, very negative treatment. Once again, I think it's an oversimplification, but we see law is negative, grace is good, right? Law is legalism, grace is freeing. Okay, I agree, but it's also an oversimplification of what we have here in the Law of Moses because Torah in Hebrew with the Jewish people is actually interpreted teaching or instruction. They see the law as being instructive, and it surely is. In the law, God was revealing his character. He was revealing how holy and righteous he is and what he required of his people in order to live in fellowship with him and enjoy his blessings. That's what the law is all about. And then he tells them, do this and don't do that, because he's instructing them how to stay in his presence, how to live righteously so that they can live in fellowship with him. Now, the Pharisees came along and they said, okay, but how do you really obey a law? So I'll give you an example um, about observing the Sabbath. Uh, the law says that they were to rest on the Sabbath and to not work. Well, how do you do that? Um, how do you work? So let me just ask you if, you, if God were to say to you, okay, on the seventh day you're to rest, I don't want you to work. Well, what does that mean to you? Well, for those of you that work out in society in a paid job, you would say, well, that means I'm not supposed to do anything that makes money on that day. I'm to uh, not go to my work or go about my work. If I own a business, I'm not to do that. That's my work. Well, for someone that might work in the home, uh, raising children, um, feeding the family, cleaning the home, what does work mean to them? It's not at all about money. So then you need a rabbi to help you determine, well, what's work? Because I got to feed my family. Uh, you know, we need to eat. So what is actually considered work in this situation? And that's where the Pharisees would come in and they'd say, well, it's this and it's not that. And therefore you can't do this, but you can do that. A very, very interesting little tidbit I'll give you is that um, in Hebrew, the word actually means that you're not to create. Now, remember, this law was first given about Sabbath. It was first given not to Moses, but in the creation story. And it says that God created the earth in six days and on the seventh day he rested. So in the law, uh, you're not supposed to create on the seventh day. So what does that mean? How do you, what do you create? And that means, well, you're not supposed to create any fire. 
and therefore you can't start a fire. Um, you can, you know, put the pot over the fire, but you can't start the fire. So the, the fire has to be started before Shabbat begins uh, so that you don't break uh, the commandment. And um, so in, in, modern, in the modern world today, we don't light fires. We just turn on the burner or we turn on the light. But, but actuality, when you turn on the switch, you're lighting the electricity. You're starting a spark of electricity that then lights the light or turns on the gas or turns on the burner. So um, in a ultra-Orthodox, an Orthodox observant community, they're not going to turn on the heat. So they have to have food that they heat, they turn on the heat before the Sabbath. And, um, and you, have, you can have hot food maybe that night, it's still hot, but on Sabbath, you're not going to have any hot food left. And this kind of thing. And so uh, there's a lot of traditions. Um, if you get in the elevator, you can't push the button to go to your floor because that's igniting, that's starting uh, a fire. It's starting a spark that leads to the choice of your floor. You can ride the elevator, but you got to get off on the floor with the other people and then maybe walk down the stairs to get to your floor. All these little things. This is where the Pharisees came in. They had to help the everyday person determine what actually constitutes violating that law, because I don't want to break the Torah. Well, there's a very famous Jewish practice called building a fence around the Torah, and that's what the Pharisees would do. They'd say, well, this law says don't light, you know, don't create on the Sabbath. Now, because you want to, you don't want to take any chances. You don't want to accidentally break the Sabbath. So therefore, don't even do this. Like, don't even get on the elevator. Uh, I'm just making up a law here, but to give you an example, it's like, so they would have the people go to the nth degree farther than what the law required, just so that they would be safe, that there would be a fence of safety around that commandment and they wouldn't break it. Jesus did the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you've heard it said, but I say to you, and then he gave them a fence around the Torah that was all related on the heart. Jesus also taught in parables. Parables have uh, two roles. One is they uh, teach a a concept into a simple everyday term by using an everyday story, something that happened on the farm, uh, some picture that everybody's very familiar with to uh, teach a lesson. Parables also sometimes concealed what he was really trying to say because Jesus wasn't about starting a revolution against Rome. He wasn't trying to start a movement as a messiah. He was trying to get to the hearts of the people. So his parables, a lot of time, just took them to the heart while it kind of covered up a more direct and more uh, incendiary 
um, uh, meaning to it, something that might ignite a reaction. So the last point I want to make before we end today is about the art of debating, because we see in the Gospels, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's at the temple. He's surrounded by Pharisees, by other rabbis, by Sadducees, by zealots. There's no Essenes in the temple because they won't have anything to do with it. But when he leaves in the evening, I think he was with the Essenes. But nevertheless, at the temple, he's surrounded by all these people and they would get into heated debates. And I tell you, we as 21st century Christians, we read some of these stories and we're like, wow, you know, they really were opposed to him or Jesus was really feisty. And, but you kind of understand debate was a part of everyday religious discourse. The Jewish people were brought up debating and questioning. And in their study of Torah, they were put into, into couples and your study partner was called a chaver, which we per, uh, translated as friend, but your chaver, you studied with, you debated with one another through the text. You questioned the text and you, you recited then how the rabbis answered that. And you as a partner, you worked through your studies in a debate kind of form. So in the personality of the Jewish people, in the everyday discourse, debate was just very natural. It just came natural to them. And so as they debated Jesus leader to leader, it didn't mean that Jesus wasn't a part of them as a people. It didn't mean he wasn't respected even as a teacher. It didn't mean he wasn't respected even as a Pharisee. He was. It's how they conversed, how they interacted with each other on it. And yes, then sometimes it would get heat enough, heated enough that uh, it came to a point of disruption and of outright disagreement and walking away. Um, but I bring this out because um, it's very, very natural, even in today in Israeli society. Um, I, I had a conversation with a young uh, Israeli that was uh, grew up in Israel in the school system in Israel and they were taught they had tour classes there and they they were taught you know this way they questioned things they just outright questioned things in the scriptures and as a part of the way they studied and then his parents moved to the United States and he was put in a Christian school and when they had uh, their their Bible class um, he would just debate and he would just ask. And the teacher got so upset because she interpreted it that he was questioning her authority. He was questioning Christianity and he kept being sent to the principal's office. He just thought that was the way you studied the Bible. So um, I thought it was a cute story. You might enjoy that. But this whole art of debating and of not accepting just what you're told, but questioning it is one of the reasons, one of the reasons that today Israel is leading the world in innovation and technology and science and medicine, because they as a people don't just accept what we're, you're told. You're, they, they question it. If they see a barrier in science or in a industry and in water conservation or whatever it is, they, they have an impasse 
To them, that's just a challenge. Begin to, you know, poke at that. Begin to question it. See over it. See under it. See around it. Get around that. That impasse is just something to be overcome and to be torn down. And so their art of debating and questioning and going beyond um, is making them a world leader. So um, I hope this has been helpful to you. We're going to play on some of this next time when we talk about Jesus's last week. But I do have a couple of resources I want to recommend as we're bringing this to a close today. There are two books that I would recommend that you, if you're interested in learning more about this first century uh, Jewish setting that Jesus grew up in and that he ministered in. Uh, we have two books that we sell in our bookstore. One is called Sitting at the Feet of Rabbi Jesus. The other is called Walking in the Dust of Rabbi Jesus. Um, the author of both of those books is Lois, uh, Lois Berberg, and they are excellent. If you want to know more about that first century world, you will love those two books. So in today's show notes, which are right below, we link to both of those books uh, in our store, and I would recommend that you get them for further learning um, about this first century Jewish world of Jesus. See you back here next time. We're going to talk about the last week of Jesus in Jerusalem. God bless. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Out of Zion with Susan Michael. Be sure to subscribe to Out of Zion now on Apple Podcasts, cpnshows.com, YouTube, or wherever you like to listen and learn. Out of Zion with Susan Michael is a production of ICEJ USA, all rights reserved.